You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, so Philippians is where you need to be. And uh, as you're turning there, let me just uh, kind of preface where we're heading this morning by saying I've been waiting for this morning for a good while. Today, we are starting a new set of sermons through the book of Philippians. Um, We're calling it Jesus and Joy. And over the next few uh, months, we're just gonna work verse by verse right through the entire uh, book of Philippians, the letter uh, of Paul to the Philippians. And we're just praying that as we learn in this letter, as we study this letter, as we see Jesus in this letter, that we would be both encouraged and convicted by the Spirit in this, uh, you know, as we study it. Um, We're praying that this would be a season where we get to meet Jesus over the book of Philippians, that we get to have our affection stirred for Jesus, our love deepened for Jesus, that there would be just a new boldness inserted into our hearts when we think about how God might wanna use us for the advancement of the gospel. We're praying those sort of things would be happening. When you think of the the letter of Philippians, it is four chapters, 104 verses. It's about two and a half pages in most of our Bibles. And I just want to invite you, as we, as we begin this set of sermons through Philippians, I just want to invite you to, to think, of, think of it this way, just for you to move your life into this book, for you just to build your house there and for you just to immerse yourself in the book of Philippians over the next few months. I just, one of the things I'm praying is that in a lot of ways, Philippians would just begin to seep into and drip into the bones of our church here, that those sort of things would be happening that you would be willing to let it do that, that you would set aside time every week to read Philippians through from front you know, to back. You'd read through the whole letter in one setting, just allowing this to, to get into your bones and into your system, that you would start seeing the letter as a whole and in the individual parts. For many of you, this would be a great season in March to jump into our Bible study methods class as we're teaching kind of how do you open up the Bible and, and read and study the Bible. We're doing that through the book of Philippians. It would be a great opportunity for you to study Philippians as you're honing skills on how to read and study the scriptures. So I'm just praying that, that you would take all these opportunities in front of you that you would see the next three or four months as just a gift from God to you, that he can meet you over the book of Philippians in this particular letter. Um, Augustine, he once said, where scripture speaks, God speaks. And as we open up the, the letter to the Philippians, we are just praying that God would speak to you. We all come believing that when we open up the Bible and read it and study it, that we are hearing from God and we're praying that our, our, our ears and our hearts would be attuned to the voice of God over the next few months. So with that, I wanna start uh, by giving some reasons why we're, we're doing Philippians. Why that book over other books? Why the letter to the Philippians? Let me give you three reasons for that. Number one, why Philippians? First reason is because Philippians is a beloved book. It's interesting uh, preaching and and doing this on a consistent basis. One of the questions that people often ask is, what are you gonna be preaching? What's next on the the docket that you're gonna be preaching? And it's been interesting for me to answer that by saying that the letter of, of Philippians and, uh, and then to watch people respond to that. And here's been a really consistent kind of theme in people's responses is, are you serious? That's my favorite, that's my favorite book of the Bible. And it's just interesting that for a lot of people, Philippians kind of fits into that slot as my favorite place to go in the Bible and to read. And that's for good reason. You know, in, in, in one sense, when you, when you read through Philippians, you are reading a letter from a pastor, from Paul, and you just see this very affectionate, pastoral, pastoral f- familial sort of tone throughout the letter. It just kind of seasons the letter. It's, it's throughout the letter. The, the passage you just heard read, verses 1 through 11 in chapter 1, it's as if in those first 11 verses, Paul's heart just gushes with love and affection for the church in Philippi. He, he loves this church. Uh, he tells them in, in chapter one, verse three, that every time I remember you, just the, the, the act of remembering you, it, it causes me to be grateful and to thank God for you. He goes on to say, just the act of remembering you has a way of filling my prayers with joy. Just remembering you, church in Philippi, it's doing that to me. That's the sort of deep affection he has for this church. In chapter four, verse one, he calls this church his joy and crown. If you read all of Paul's letters, I think it's pretty easy to see that although I don't know that Paul should have favorites necessarily, the church in Philippi is his favorite. 
That this is the church he loves. He just has this really deep bond and affection for, for this particular church. And, and a lot of that's for good reason. Paul and this particular sh- uh, church have a deep partnership over the gospel. There, there is a deep partnership between Paul and this particular church. Just think of the occasion of this letter. Paul is in Rome. Uh, it's roughly 10 years after the, the church was first planted. He's in Rome in a prison cell. And the church in Philippi have taken up an offering to help supply the needs of Paul in this prison cell. So they've taken up the offering and then they send it by Epaphroditus, a dear brother in their church, to get those supplies to Paul. Now Epaphroditus, he almost died on the way of getting those those supplies there. He got sick, almost died. Then Paul receives the supplies through Epaphroditus from this church. And the, the letter of Philippians is Paul's response to their gift. He is now writing back to them in part to thank them and to show his deep love and appreciation for their partnership in the gospel. And before I move on, I just wanna take a moment. And when I read Philippians 1, 1 through 11, when I read Paul say things like, to this church, you're my joy and my crown. I so identify with those feelings. When I look upon you, this particular church family and the faces that make up, the people that make up this church family, I just love this place and these people. I love you. And in a lot of ways, I would use similar language. Like when I think of you, it causes me to thank God. When I think of you, it it just infuses joy into my prayers. In a lot of ways, when when Paul's saying, you're my joy and my crown, I feel that way about you. Sometimes people will ask me like, okay, the big picture of life, like what is it that you wanna go do? Like what, what I'm like, this is what I wanna do. With, with these people in this place, th- this is what I wanna spend the rest of my life co-laboring for the good of this church family. I just want you to know, I love you. I just have such a deep appreciation and gratefulness for this particular church family. So there's this affectionate tone. It's one of the reasons why it's such a beloved book. Another reason why it's so beloved is because Philippians is just... It's shot through with these incredibly rich and memorable passages. Let me just give you a sampling of some of these that we're going to be covering over the next few months. Philippians 1.21, a very well-known verse. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. I mean, just such a memorable passage that sums up the, the way Paul sees the Christian life and the priority of Jesus in our life. Philippians 1.27 Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 7. One of the most important passages about Jesus in the New Testament. Have this mind among yourselves, which is also yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. Philippians 2, 12 through 13, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Chapter three, verse eight, indeed, Paul says, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and I consider them rubbish, trash, garbage in order that I may gain Christ. Chapter three, verses 13 and 14. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Philippians three, verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, from heaven, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 4, verse 4, rejoice, be happy in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice. Philippians 4, 6 and 7, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4, 11, I have learned in whatever situation I am, to be content. 
Who in here couldn't, couldn't use learning that, right? Philippians 4.13, I can do all things, all things through Christ who, who strengthens me. I mean, when I read those sort of rich and memorable passages, it makes sense why so many people look at Philippians and they're like, man, it is my go-to book in the Bible. It's that beloved book. That's one reason why we're preaching through Philippians. Another reason why we're preaching through Philippians is because Philippians holds before us Jesus as our joy. Philippians, unlike many other books, I mean, it just, it just shoves before us Jesus as our joy. Now that, that phrase, you know, that, that we're working on this, this year is enjoying Jesus together. It's, it's the phrase that we're praying our souls would just sort of sink its teeth into enjoying Jesus together. We want this to be a year where we experience more of Psalm 1611. In your presence, God, is fullness of joy. At your right hand, pleasures forevermore. We want this to be a year where we know more about that, where we don't passively pursue that, but we actively and aggressively pursue more of the fullness of joy that can be found in Jesus. We want it to be a year full of that. And it's such an important issue. Enjoying Jesus is how we love Jesus. Enjoying Jesus is how we glorify Jesus. It's how we show the worth and the value of Jesus. Enjoying Jesus is how we fight against sin. I love how one pastor put it, sin is what we do when our hearts aren't satisfied in God. So if that's true, the key to, to fighting toward Christ's likeness, toward holiness against sin and temptation, the key to that is keeping our hearts satisfied in God. The key is us together enjoying Jesus. That's the key to those things. And it's interesting, uh, we're calling this set of sermons, Jesus and joy, because Philippians holds those two things before us, Jesus and joy in such an overt way. There's no doubt when you read the book of Philippians, when you read this letter, the most often used word and the dominant theme, the most important word, most often used and most important word in Philippians is Jesus that you see Jesus throughout this letter. It's interesting too, just as a quick aside, that per 100 words, there is no other book in the New Testament that uses the word gospel more than the book of Philippians. So Jesus, gospel, th th those sort of things, it is the dominant theme inside of Philippians. But coming in a strong second place, showing up roughly 20 times in, in these four chapters is the word joy or one of its you know, synonyms. J joy is everywhere in the book of Philippians. Joy, this deep, durable delight in God that ruins us for everything else, that, that joy, it, you might think of it this way. It just seasons the letter. It just flavors everything you find in the letter is flavored by joy. And, and the sort of joy that you're gonna find in Philippians is a crazy joy. It's an unexpected joy. This is, this is not the joy that you have when everything in your life is going just the way you want it to go. Remember the context. Paul is writing from a prison cell. He is in prison and in prison, in a Roman prison, his heart is just bursting forth with joy in Jesus. That is how deep and durable the, the, the joy that Jesus offers is. It, it perseveres even in prison. Even in the prisons in our life, that this sort of joy perseveres in it. And Paul is inviting us. He wants us to experience that same sort of joy that he has in Jesus. He wants our heart to buzz forth with the same joy to be found in Jesus. Joy is so important to Paul that when he's defining his job as a pastor, he defines it in light of joy. Now look at this in chapter one, verse 25. He says, you know, he's looking at the church and he's saying to them, okay, I think I'm gonna survive. I don't think they're gonna kill me right now. I think I'm gonna make it and I'll remain and I'm gonna continue with you all. And here's how he defines his job as a pastor. Here's why I'm going to remain with you. For your progress and joy in the faith. He's saying, Here, here's the job of a pastor. Here's the job of a person co-laboring beside uh, other uh, Christians. It's I'm co-laboring for your progress in faith and your joy in the faith. I want you to be happy in Jesus, he's saying. I want you, I'm gonna, I'm gonna labor beside you so that you can enjoy the fullness of Jesus. This is how Paul thinks about his role as a pastor. In Philippians chapter three, 
This joy in Jesus has utterly ruined Paul for everything else. I'm gonna read this one again in in Philippians 3, verse eight. Paul says, indeed, I count everything as loss. Stacked up against Jesus, everything is lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, for the sake of Jesus, I've suffered the loss of all things and I count them as garbage, as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Philippians 4.4, 4, he commands us rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say it, rejoice. This is how dominant that theme is. In, in Philippians uh, chapter 4, verse 12, Paul says, he's, tell, he's telling us, I've learned the secret. I've learned the secret of contentment, of how to deal with a lot and a lack. I, I've learned the secret. I, I know now I've discovered, how do you do that? And here's the secret that he's presenting to us. The secret is keeping our hearts fastened on the joy to be found in Jesus. That's the secret. You can handle a lot if your heart's fastened to Jesus for your joy. You can handle a lack when your heart is fastened to Jesus as your joy. That's the secret. And I'm just praying that this, this particular letter to the Philippians, as we study it for the next three or four months, would be an occasion, would give us ample cause to enjoy Jesus together that we would all find new enjoyment in Jesus as we study this book. And here's the third reason why we're studying the book of Philippians. Philippians reminds us of the importance of church planting. It reminds us of the importance of church planting. Now let's think context of the book here for a moment. But before we can jump into the the book of Philippians, we need to, to take one step back and look at the origins of the church. We need to go over to Acts chapter 16. You're welcome to flip over there if you'd like. We need to go back to Acts 16, rewind the clock about 10 years to the beginnings of this when the church was planted in Philippi. So it's roughly AD 52. That's Acts 16. It's roughly AD 52. It's about 20 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Paul's on his second missionary journey. And he's on this missionary journey. He's got plans of where he's gonna go. He's kind of mapped this thing out when all of a sudden he uh, gets a vision one night and he sees a man saying, this is in Acts 16, verse nine. He sees a man saying in this vision, hey, Paul, come over to Macedonia and preach the gospel to us. So, So Paul, come over here. Paul wakes up and he interprets that dream as directions from God. So, so he interprets that as God saying, hey, Paul, why don't you drop your grand plans for your life, take a left turn and come over to Macedonia. He receives that as direction from God. And in what's, what's likely the most significant event in the history of church planting, Paul listens and obeys Jesus. And, and he crosses over, he goes to Macedonia onto Philippi and there by the grace of God planted the first church on European soil. That's this church in Philippi, the first church on European soil. And in Acts 16, th- this church is planted and we see in a lot of ways a microcosm of the, of the New Testament pattern for gospel advancement. Acts 16 is showing you how the gospel advances from one place to another in the New Testament. It's how it advances then and it's how it advances now. And here's the pattern that you see in Acts 16. Paul and his team show up in a place, they plant the gospel, then they plant a church. They go to the next place, plant the gospel, then they plant a church. And they go to the next place, they plant the gospel and then they plant a church. That's exactly how the gospel moved forward in the New Testament. And it's still the way the gospel is to move forward now. Right, right now in the 21st century, it's the way it's supposed to happen now. Plant the gospel and then plant a church. So I wanna show you in Acts 16, how the gospel was planted and then therefore how the church was planted. And you see this in three different stories. The first one is the story of Lydia. When Paul and Silas and the team arrived in Philippi, they found no synagogue. So there was no Jewish presence and there was no Christian presence in Philippi. That was not there yet in in this city. So they went outside the city on a Sabbath morning, on a Sunday morning, down to the riverbank. And there at the riverbank, they popped into a little gathering of some gals at the river. And Paul starts talking about Jesus. And this is where you pick it up in Acts 16, verses 14 and 15. It says this in Acts, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. 
So she feared God. She, she was worshiping. She just had no idea who Jesus was. And then it says this, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was being said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Now think about what you're seeing in those two verses. Lydia started her day as a non-Christian. She didn't know Jesus. At the end of her day, she laid down and she went to sleep, rescued by Jesus and secure in the family of God. That's what happened to Lydia in that, that particular passage, in those couple of verses. That, that's what went down. Now, I think in a lot of ways, when we read that, it should inform what we should be begging God for every time we gather as a church family. That there would be Lydia's who come in and hear then the Lord opens their heart and they believe in Jesus. That they come maybe even with a vague respect of God and they leave rescued by God and secure in the family of God. Now, let this example of Lydia just encourage every one of us in the room. When you, when you think of what's happening here, Lydia didn't believe in Jesus because of Paul's like incredible persuasive skills. She didn't believe in Jesus because of Paul's competence and how he talked about Jesus. She believed in Jesus because the Holy Spirit's work in her life of opening up her heart so she could hear. That's how she believed in Jesus. That's why she believed in Jesus. So when you share the gospel, like when, when God infuses you with boldness and you talk about Jesus to people, just know this, you aren't alone in that moment. And it's not up to your persuasive skills in that moment. It's not up to your competency even in how you talk about Jesus in that moment. We are all dependent upon the Spirit's work of opening a heart so that they can hear Jesus and believe in him. And you know, and I think that so many of us are prone to think like this with people. They're just too far down the road. There's no way God could open up their hearts. Really? Like if God could open the heart of Paul, if God could open the heart of Lydia, whose heart can he not open, right? So let Lydia's example encourage us this morning. Here's the second story of the gospel being planted in Philippi. You see it in verses 16 through 24. It's the story of this tormented girl. This girl is owned by some masters who are ruthless and they are exploiting her for their profit. And Paul then cast this spirit, this demon out of this tormented girl. And by all accounts, it seems that she in that moment met Jesus. But her transformation didn't please her owners or more specifically, it didn't please their prophets. So they grabbed Paul and Silas. They brought them before the city, kind of the whole of the city and the authorities of the city. They stripped Paul and Silas and kind of that crew down. They beat them. And then it says in Acts 16, after inflicting many blows upon them, they threw them into prison. Now, what do we learn from that story? That story reminds us that ministry is war. That ministry is war. That there really are the enemies of the world, the flesh and the devil, and they are conspiring against the deliverance of tormented men and women like this. They are conspiring against the gospel being planted in people like this. They are conspiring against churches being planted like this. But what else do we learn in this story? The story also reminds us that in this war, the power of God prevails. That God is more powerful than everything that's against us. It's Romans 8.31, right? If God is for us, who can be against us? What does it matter who's against us? This is showing us this. The power of God prevails. Yes, ministry is war, but yes, God is ultimately and supremely powerful. Then you have story number three of the gospel being planted in Philippi. And it's the story of the jailer. It's the story of the jailer. So Paul and Silas have been stripped, right? In front of the city, in front of the authorities. They have been beaten and inflicted with many blows. And then after that, they were thrown into prison and they were bound in stocks. And in that prison, it's midnight. And they're not doing what most of us would be doing, sleeping, right? In Acts 16, they start at midnight praying and singing to Jesus, now, now, there is on display for us that deep, durable delight in Jesus. It, it's so durable that it can persevere through prison, right? 
And so they're suffering in Acts 16. They're in prison in stocks. They're suffering. But while they're suffering, they're also singing. This is Paul living out the command of Ephesians or of uh, Philippians 4.4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Paul, even in prison in stocks. And Paul's saying, yes. Even their joy in Jesus perseveres. So it's midnight, they're singing and praying to God and all of a sudden an earthquake just shakes the prison. And this is a miracle from God. The, the prison doors fling open, the stocks come unbound and the jailer is, is automatically assuming all these people have been freed. All these prisoners are now out of the prison. And so he knows he would be executed for that. So he's about to fall on his own sword. Right? He's just like, I'll just, I'll just do what I know is gonna be done to me. And Paul intervenes. He preaches the gospel to this jailer. And in Acts 16, verse 30, the jailer responds by saying, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul answers, there's just, there's just this, just come to God with the empty hands of faith and believe in Jesus. That's all you need to do. And this jailer and his family are saved. Now, now think about this jailer for a, a moment here. He's living his own life. He didn't go to work that day thinking about Jesus. He's just thinking about how to survive, how to bring home a paycheck, how to, how to kind of provide for his family, make sure everything's working. And, and all of a sudden, and by the way, he is not asking the question when he goes to work, what must I do to be saved? That's not the question on his mind, right? But God intervenes. God providentially arranges these circumstances to confront this jailer with Jesus, to, to bring to the forefront the question in his heart, like, God, wh what do I need to do? How, how can I be right with you? Wouldn't we love to see God doing that around here more often? See, I can't read the stories of God planting the gospel in Philippi, then planting a church in Philippi. I can't, I cannot read those stories without pleading for God to do more of that here. I mean, I think reading Acts 16 should put in all of us an ache to see more of that, to, to want more Lydia's. To, to want more tormented people finding deliverance and freedom in Jesus, to find more jailers coming alive in Jesus. I think it should produce in all of us just a, a, a begging sort of pleading prayer, God, would you let us see more of that? And before we move on, can we just stop and pray for that? That God would give us more of that? So God, we just, as your church, God, we want you to know we want more Lydia's. God, we wanna see more people beaten and bruised by life, finding deliverance in you, oh God. God, would you give that to us? God, may we be able to celebrate over the next year story after story of you doing that, of jailers not thinking about you, all of a sudden thinking about you. People that, that you are the last thought on their mind being confronted with Jesus and asking the question, how in the world can I be saved? Father, would you put an ache in us, a burden in us for the people in our area, in our city, this city that you've entrusted to us. God, would you put an ache for those who don't know you, who are far from you, who are on their way to an eternity apart from you? In the words of Spurgeon, if they're gonna make it to an eternity apart from you, God, may they have to leap over our bodies. God, may, may, they, may they get to hell with us around their knees. God, would you create in us that sort of an ache for Lydia's, for jailers like this? Oh God, we wanna see more of that. And it's in your good name that we ask it. Amen. That might be the longest introduction to any sermon I've ever preached. <laughs> we are now to Philippians 1, verse 1. And we're not making it very far today. We're making it all the way through two verses. Philippians 1, 1 through 2. Now, in this introduction to the, to the letter of Philippians, in these first two verses, we get to meet Paul. That's who we're being introduced to in these first two verses. And, I, you know, if you've read the New Testament, the New Testament talks a lot about Paul. And, I, you know, if you've read through it, you're introduced to the church planter Paul. You're introduced to the bold and just zealous evangelist Paul. 
I mean, we see that Paul coming through throughout the New Testament, but I think there is a unique Paul that we are introduced to in these first two verses of Philippians. And it's a pastoral Paul, a tender-hearted Paul, an affectionate pastor Paul. That that's who we're introduced to. We're, we're introduced to the big heart of Paul. What we're introduced to the way that Paul sees the world the way that Paul sees himself, the way that Paul sees the church, the way that Paul sees everything. We're introduced to that Paul here. Now, I wanna just give you this warning. When you think about uh, these particular verses, these first two verses, I, I don't know about you, but whenever I get to a New Testament letter like Philippians, I just have a tendency to, to wanna read over those first couple of like introductory verses. And, and I think there's something in me that's just so tempted to say, just let me get right to the meat of this thing. Let me get right to the good stuff as if there's not good stuff in these introductions, right? And so I, I'm just, I don't know about you, but I'm so prone to think that way about them. And, and as one commentator corrected me in this, he, he said this, there are no wasted words in the Bible. There's no wasted words. Even in a little introduction, there's no wasted words in the Bible. Just hurried readers of the Bible. So may we slow down and allow ourselves to look at these and to bring a curious heart to these first couple of verses. And in these verses, we see three things from Paul. We see Paul's view of himself, Paul's view of the church, and we see Paul's hope for the letter. So, so first, Paul's view of himself. How does Paul see himself? We, we learn in the first verse, the opening phrase in this letter, how Paul sees himself. Paul views himself as a servant. That's the way Paul views himself. Chapter one, verse one, the first phrase, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Servants of Christ Jesus. Now, a, a more pointed word might be to say, a slave of Christ Jesus. A, that would be the literal, a slave of Jesus. Now, th that word slave is, was just as offensive then as it is now. It's just a sort of off-putting then as it is to our sort of modern ears. He's saying that word slave, that he's a slave of Christ Jesus to a people who live in a Roman world where slavery is a present reality, where slaves were common. He's saying that into that world, into a group of people like that. And his opening thought, the way he sets the tone for the entirety of the letter, his opening thought is... the. the this is, this is the way I see myself. He's, he's showing us, th this, is, this, this is the grid. This is the interpretive lens that I see myself through. I am a slave of Jesus. I, I no longer own myself. I no longer have the final rights to my life, the final say in my life. Rather, I've been bought by God. I've been purchased by the death of his beloved son, Jesus. I'm now owned by another. I am owned by God. And I now gladly submit to my joy-giving king, Jesus. That, that is his opening foray into this letter. It's, it's Paul saying, this is how I see me. I am a slave of Jesus, a, a servant of Christ Jesus. Paul here in the opening phrase is modeling humble servanthood. That's what he's modeling here in the opening phrase. Paul's not wasting words in this introduction. In a lot of ways, he is setting the table for the meal of Philippians. He is setting the table for what he wants to talk about in Philippians. One of the main themes in this letter is the church's lack of unity. By looking at chapter two, verses one through 11, you can kind of pick up on some of the cues of what's behind that lack of unity. Uh, there was self-centeredness behind it. There was selfish ambition behind it. There was conceit behind it. There was a lack of humility and an abundance of pride behind it. In chapter two, there are some who are grumbling, probably against the leaders of the church. So you have grumbling going on in the church in Philippi. In chapter four, Paul, this is crazy. Paul mentions two ladies by name and calls them out in their dispute. He, he looks at him and says, hey, you by name and you by name, can we, can we bring this thing together? I mean, that's one way to get your name in the Bible, right? Paul calling you out for, for a problem you have with someone else. So, so you see this back behind the, the book of Philippians. 
He's he's setting the table in this humble servanthood that he's modeling some of the solutions to the disunity that he's seeing here. Now, why is that disunity there? Why why are those grumblings there? What's happening there? Well, it's been 10 years since Act 16 happened, since Lydia's conversion, the jailer's conversion, the little girl's conversion. It's been 10 years since then. And do you know what happens over a 10-year period in any church? Romanticism turns into real life. That's what happens. Romanticism fades into real life of you living next to real people. Remaining sin over a 10-year period, remaining sin has a way of breaking into a church and then breaking relationships. People sin against you, you sin against them. Over a 10-year period, the disappointments mount. If you're in anywhere for 10 years, guess what's gonna happen? Disappointments are gonna start stacking on top of each other. That's what's happened in the church in Philippi over those 10 years. And Paul's looking at this precious church and he's concerned about their unity. And this isn't unique to the Philippian church, right? This This is common in any church who has any history behind it. Whether it's 10 years for the Philippian church or like our eight years, that those things have a way of mounting. Those things have a way of, of growing and stacking on top of one another. So Paul opens the letter by modeling this view of himself that's required if we're ever going to like make it through that relational conflict. And here's what's required, humble servanthood. He's leading by example. He's, he's showing us, here's the way I view myself. I'm not looking at the church trying to make servant of everyone in the church. No, I'm lowering myself and I'm trying to make myself a servant of everyone in that church. Saying, this is, this is who I am. This is how I see myself. I'm a slave of Jesus. I've gladly submitted myself to the interest of Jesus and the interest of other people. That's how Paul sees himself. Now that just begs the question, is that how you see yourself? Do you see yourself that way? How do you want other people to see you? Do you want them to see you as an independent, self-sufficient person who deserves their rights, who better be treated with the dignity and respect that you deserve or else? Is that how you want people to see you? Is that how you position yourself beside people? Or do you see yourself as a slave of Jesus, a servant of Jesus, owned by Jesus, gladly serving his interests and the interests of others? Can you say by the grace of God that he has died for me? He's purchased me. I am am all his. God, whatever, whenever. God, God, I am your servant. I'm your slave. Is that the way you see yourself? Is that the way you want other people to see you? Paul's view of himself is as a servant. But then Paul's view of the church is different. Paul's view of the church is something else. When Paul looks out on the church, he sees them as saints. This is the next phrase in in verse one. To all the saints who are in Christ Jesus, who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Now notice notice the, the contrast here. He doesn't see everyone else as slaves and him as a saint. He sees him as the slave and everyone else as the saints. Did you see that? He's, he's seeing the church from God's perspective. He's looking at the Philippian church and saying, this is what I see when I see you. I see saints there. These precious brothers and sisters are saints. Now, the word saint is, is prone to a lot of confusion, especially if you come maybe out of the Roman Catholic world. I think there's a lot of confusion around this. That that word saint in the Bible is not used to designate a special class of Christians. That's not what it is in the scriptures. And and just notice here, it says to all the saints in Philippi, right? That's to to the whole church, all the brothers and sisters that make up this church. It's not to an elite crew of them, to a special class of them. It's it's all of the people of Philippi, all the, the followers of Jesus. It's the whole church there. It's to all the saints. Saints are the chosen ones of God. They're the called out ones. They're the set apart ones. It's those that God has set his affection on. That's who the saints are. And then the next phrase answers the question, how are we made saints? He says, to all the saints, and then he says this, the next phrase answers the question, how how are we made saints? In Christ Jesus. That's how we're made a saint. In Christ Jesus. In Christ or in Jesus is Paul's favorite phrase in the New Testament. He uses it like 164 times 
You just can't read anything Paul writes without seeing the phrase in Christ or in Christ Jesus. It's Paul's favorite way of describing a Christian. And it's the most important thing you can know about you. The most important thing you can know is, am I in Christ or outside of Christ? Because if we're not in Christ, it means that we're in sin. So the most important thing you can know about you is, am I in Christ? It's, it's the way Paul defines what a Christian is. And that phrase of being in Christ, it's pointing to our union with Christ, that we have died with Jesus, that we have risen with Jesus. And now, according to Colossians, we are, at, we are just, we're hidden inside of Jesus. So much so that when Paul looks at, at you and me, I mean, we know how much sin's in our life, right? When Paul looks at, or when Paul's saying, when God looks at you and, and I, we are so hidden in Christ that God doesn't see our sin. He sees Jesus in us. So this is why he can call us saints because we're in Christ. We're saints, not because of what we have done or haven't done, but because of what Jesus has done. We're saints because of Jesus. And this is the way Paul saw the church. This is the, the way you saw the church in Philippi, these precious brothers and sisters. And this is also true of this church. This is the way God would see this church. These brothers and sisters that make up your saints because of Jesus. Not because of your immaturity or lack, but because of Jesus, you are saints. Now, we need to remind each other of that. You need to remind me of that. I need to remind you of that. Why do we need to remind each other of that? because of the history that's here. The Philippian church had 10 years of history. We have roughly eight years of history. And, and when I think of our history, much like the Philippian church, we have wonderful things to celebrate in our history, incredible things. But you know what we also have? Disappointments, hurts. Those also make up our history. And you know, just to, to say it plainly, as your pastor, I just want you to know this. I am so going to disappoint you. And do you know why I'm gonna disappoint you? Because sin still remains in me. Sin is still alive and well in me. And the more you get to know me, like the more you don't know me in this context, but you know me like across the table, the more you're going to bump into the remaining sin in me that's gonna consistently cause hurt in your life, pain in your life, disappointment in your life. I am so gonna disappoint you. And do you know that we're all gonna disappoint one another? And you know why that is? because sin's remaining in all of our lives. So the more we get to know anyone in this room, the more they're gonna disappoint us, the, the more they're going to hurt us. And you know what the, the, the amazing thing about this particular passage is, this, this designation of saints is, even though the, the sin, that sin still remains in us, even though we're people who hurt other people, disappoint other people, even though all of that is true, this designation of saints doesn't change. It's still the way God looks at us because we're in Christ. It's still the way that he sees us. This is the way Paul sees the church and Paul's inviting us to see this church, our church that way. Now, and, and here's, here's the reason that's so important for, for us to see like Paul sees, I'm a slave, that these people around me are saints. I, I'm, I'm a servant, here are the saints. Here's the reason that's so important. It, it's the only thing that will sustain us as we're hurt and disappointed by people, as we bump into the remaining sin in people. It's the only thing that will, will allow us to be sustained and to persevere through those things. When we remember that we're servants, we're slaves of Jesus, and these precious people around me, they're, they're saints. When we remember that, you know what it'll do? It'll have a way of lifting up your view beyond and over the people that make up Stonegate all the way to the work of God in the people of Stonegate. Isn't that an amazing thing to think about? See, the more we think about people around us as saints, the more we, the more we see the church that way, the more we'll stay preoccupied with the grace of God at work in people rather than the remaining sin that's still at work in people. And who doesn't need that in this room? Who, who doesn't need to be freshly reminded, these people are saints and God's at work in them. God is conforming them to the image of Jesus. Who doesn't need to be preoccupied with the grace of God at work in one another's lives? This is what that designation of saints tells us. Lastly, Paul's hope for the letter, and we'll end here. Paul's hope for the letter. You see it in verse two. 
Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you, church, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is, this is what God is praying for the people of Philippi as they read the letter. This is what he is in some ways just blessing them with and pronouncing over them grace and peace. If you want a, if you want a summary of Paul's hope for this letter in the lives of his people, of the church in Philippi and now in, in the people of Stonegate, here's the summary. The, the summary is, I want this to be a means that God would use to supply people with grace and peace. That grace, it's that unmerited favor of God to undeserving people. People have done nothing to deserve it. But even more, it's, it's God's unmerited favor to ill-deserving people. Like we've done everything imaginable to disqualify ourselves from the favor of God. And grace is this unmerited favor of God to undeserving and ill-deserving rebels like you and me. And the result of that grace is peace. That that grace leads to peace, peace upward with God, peace inward in our own lives, peace outward toward other people. Listen to Gordon Fee summarize this. Listen to how he says it. He just, he puts great words around this. He says it this way. The sum total of God's activity toward his human creatures is found in the word grace. This is how God interacts with us. Is it work in this room? It's, it's grace. This is, this is the sum total of God's activity toward us. It's found in the word grace. God has given himself to his people bountifully and mercifully, mercifully in Christ. Nothing is deserved. Nothing can be achieved. Now, the sum total of those benefits of grace as they are experienced by the recipients of God's grace is peace. The sum total is peace. God's shalom, both now and to come. The, le the latter, peace, flows out of the former, grace. And both together flow from God our Father, who were made effective in our human history through the Lord Jesus Christ. But Paul, uh, Paul is outlining two, two sum totals here. This is what we're seeing in verse two. The sum total of God's activity, grace. That the sum total of grace's benefits, peace. And do you see the relationship at work here? That the more you're aware of the grace of God, the more peace that you experience in your life. See, if, if you're grasping for and struggling to find peace, the reason is that you have lost sight of grace. So Paul is saying, here's the intent of the letter. Here's what I wanted to accomplish in your life. Church in Philippi, church in Midlothian, Stonegate. This is what I want it to accomplish. That this letter is meant, this letter is intended to make you more aware of the grace of Jesus than you are your own sin. More aware of the grace of Jesus than you are your own suffering. More aware of the grace of Jesus than you are the disappointments of people around you. It's to, it's to preoccupy you with grace. And then as you are preoccupied with grace, this letter is meant to fill you with the peace of Jesus. That's Paul's purpose and intent. I mean, I think in a lot of ways, Paul's hope for this letter is that God would in some ways cut a canal right in the middle of your soul. And in that canal, through this letter, Paul's praying that this letter would be a means of grace where your heart would be full with grace upon grace upon grace. And as your heart fills up with grace, that your heart would be full of peace upon peace. That's what Paul is after. That's his aim. And Stonegate, can we pray for that and ask God for it? Let's do it. I want to give you a moment to allow the Spirit of God to press into you what would be most helpful, to wipe away the things that wouldn't be, and The most important thing you can know about your life is whether or not you're in Christ. Are you in Christ? And there are some like Lydia who woke up this morning with even a vague respect of God. That like the Philippian jailer, 
who just wasn't even thinking about God. And we woke up and we were not in, we were outside of Christ. We're still in our sin. And just like Acts 16, this is gonna be the day, this is the moment where that decisive step of faith is taken. Where we hold up our hands and say, God, what must I do to be saved? And we're gonna hear from Paul, here's all you do. You just turn from your sin and bring to God empty hands. You come to God with the empty hands of faith and do nothing but trust in what Jesus will bring to make your salvation possible. We're gonna wake up like Lydia, like that jailer. And then we're gonna go to sleep like them, safe and secure in the family of God. And if that's you this morning, we're gonna have people right over at our prayer table while we sing today. And we would love to pray for you to begin that journey with you. And for the rest of us in the room, do you see yourself as a slave of Jesus? as a servant of Jesus. But where in your life right now are you saying, God, you're not the master, I'm the master. So so God, you get behind me and I'll tell you where you can fit into my life. Where are you refusing Jesus right now? Where have you barricaded yourself behind a wall that keeps Jesus on the other side? This is the moment for us to, in a new and fresh way, bow the knee before Jesus and say, no, no, I am your servant. You have bought me. I am a glad-hearted servant of you, my joy-giving King. I'm yours, God, whatever, whenever, I am yours. I'm your servant. Where do you need to say that today? Oh God, would you help us? Would you make that clear today? God, would you make this church a group of servants, slaves of yours, glad-hearted servants of our joy-giving King? God, would you make us that? Oh God, would you do it? It's in your good name that I ask it. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.